0: Well, uh, thank you for coming. I'm Dr. Bain. I'm not normally a pastor. This is the first time i ever preached on a Sunday. So I noticed Pastor D was here. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought you were gone. Mike's gone. He suckered me into being here, and he's still here. But the reason Pastor D is here is because uh, they're supposed to be gone on their anniversary, and Patty, his wife, has a lot of sciatic issues going on, and so pray for them uh, as, as you get a chance and think about it. As I was thinking about what should we talk about I figure whatever I'm going through, I'm assuming if you're like me, you're going through the same thing, and things are a little difficult and funny, odd, crazy in our world right now, at least it seems to me. And so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what should we talk about? And Dee's always preaching that everything rises and falls on leadership, and I believe that 100%, and I've thought about it, that how do you lead when you feel lost, because how many of you feel kind of lost right now? What's going to happen with your kids coming to school? Are they at home? Are you teaching them? Are they at school? What do they do? What's your role? What do you do with your business? Do you make a big purchase or not? Do you buy real estate in downtown Portland? What is it that you do, right? So you have uncertainty, right? So the question is, if you feel a little bit lost, how would you lead? And so what we're going to do is cover three things. Number one, you have to understand your identity. And most of us really struggle with that. If you don't know who you are, you can't lead. From there, you have to control your attitude and frame your thinking properly. Then you take action and you have a plan and you go and do something. So that's what we're going to cover today uh, as we go through these. You'll have your notes and we'll put a little number up on there when you get to a note deal. But if you are lost... If you really don't understand who you are, you don't know your role and how things fit, you can't lead. If you don't know who you are, you can't know where you're supposed to go because you have to know who you are first. So if you're lost, you can't lead. Well, how about this? When you feel lost, why would you feel lost? Why do you feel kind of lost right now? You feel that way because of your emotions your limbic system, the emotional part of your brain, fear and anxiety and uncertainty, faced with circumstances. So you feel a certain way, reactionary to the circumstances in your life that aren't ideal, and you feel lost. And that is always a sign of weakness, your feelings that way. So have you noticed how often God asks how you feel? You see it all the time in Scripture, Right? You never see that. I'm going to give you some counterexamples. Abraham, how do you feel about slaying your son right here on the altar? God doesn't ask that question. How about Jonah? Jonah, I want you to preach to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, these wicked people that hate Israel. I want you to preach to them so that I can extend their life before they're destroyed. Jonah wants them burned. Jonah makes it clear how he feels, but did God really care what Jonah felt. That's not part of the equation. Here's the biggest one. My son Jesus, how do you feel about carrying your cross up that hill tomorrow? Was that question asked? No, Jesus let it be known how He felt because He had human emotions. The point is You don't give in to your emotions that are based on bad circumstances. The whole point is your growth. You're either building strength or building weakness. And when we give in to our emotions, we're building weakness. When we overcome our emotions despite the circumstances, now we build strength. God is a God of strength and power and overcoming, not a God of weakness and succumbing to circumstances. So, what's the solution? Uh, how do we figure out our identity? Because uh, that's really the key of what we have to do is understand who, what our identity is. Uh, and I should have, number one didn't show up, but number one in your notes, God is more concerned with our choice of action than with how we feel about our circumstances. He's more concerned with our choice of action than with how we feel. Number two is our identity. We don't make our own identity. God tells us who we are. You notice our culture tries to tell you, go ahead and think whatever you want, make your own identity, no matter how ridiculous it is, and be that. Totally opposite of Scripture. Scripture, God tells you who you are. You are not God. You don't determine that. And so your God-given identity is what's important. We're going to look at the life of David. So we all know David, early in his life, killed Goliath. He was anointed king prior to that, so he knew he couldn't die. he wasn't king yet. So, a principle we're going to learn is there's an identity that may be labeled, but it can take time to fully unfold. Same thing happens with David. He's king, anointed, but not king yet. Saul's king. He kills Goliath. Then he goes through this period of time wandering the desert where Saul, the king, is chasing after him, and then he comes to where we're going to pick up the story. So, it's later in David's life, and it's right before the battle where Saul and Jonathan are killed. And so it's leading up to that to hide from Saul. What David did was went and hung out with the Philistines, and so he was with those guys for a while, hiding from Saul. And the Philistines now, there's five lords of them. They go up to Aphek. It's Ziklag is the town David is in. Three days journey, 60 miles up to Aphek, and that's where they're going to launch into Mount Geboa, where they end up killing Saul. So that's the setting. Three days march up. We're not sure what David would have done there, but he's acting like he's with the Philistines. And then four of the are like, dude, what are you doing bringing him? He's got 600 warriors. They're going to turn on us. Have him go back. So they kick him out. So he goes three days up, three days back. That's where we pick up this story in First Samuel 30, 1 through 10. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag. They've Three days up, three days now. And the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and Ziklag and had overthrown it and burned it with fire. They took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire. Their wives and their sons, their daughters who had been taken captive, David and the people who were with him, lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength left in them to weep anymore. So, at this stage, how is the strength of David? How is it ranking? it's down at the bottom. This is the low part of his life. They don't even have the strength to weep anymore. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people, all 600 of these military guys, were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to the priest, the son of Himalek, please bring me the ephod. That's what he would wear, and that's how they'd So the priest brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And God said, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him. They came to the brook Bezor and left behind those who were too tired. David pursued, he and 400, but 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook remained behind. So these are men of war, men of valor this three-day up journey, three-day down journey, they're exhausted. They're emotionally and physically exhausted. They've lost their family. The only thing they have is what's sitting on their horse. That's it. So we go back. David is exhausted physically. He can't even weep. How's his emotional state? He is greatly distressed. His limbic system is pumping fear and anxiety and self-preservation. Why is he so distressed? All of his guys, all 600, and look at this. It's all and each one. To a man, they have had it with David, your terrible leadership. You had us waste all this time and energy going up three days' journey. Then we don't even fight. We're not even sure why we're there. What are we going to do anyway? Then three days back, and they're exhausted, and everything's burned. And the women and children are taken captive. This is a low point. There is not one man in the group on David's side. And they're going to kill him. But. So but and if are two of the biggest words in Scripture that pivot everything. Here is a major pivot point. But. So David's screwed. He's going to be stoned. He's distressed, greatly distressed. But something happens. What is this pivot? You're either gaining in strength or you're growing in weakness, which is it? David gains strength. What does he do? He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Kind of a cryptic statement. I always kind of wondered what that really means. Uh, And you notice with David, it was the Lord his God. All throughout the Psalms, you'll see David praying to the Lord my God. If he's writing it, this is third person, so someone says his God. But David will say the Lord my God. Compare and contrast that with Saul. Saul will often say, hey, Samuel, could you come pray for me? I'm in a pickle here. Would you pray to the Lord your God for me? Saul did not have that personal intimacy with God like David did, the Lord his God. Number three, most people quit when they are physically and emotionally exhausted. A third of David's dudes quit right there. They're at the end of their rope. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. God is not the God of fear and weakness, but of power, love, and discipline. 1 Samuel 23, what we're going to do here is look, what was the, the technique? A deep breathing technique, a quick meditation, a reciting a verse. What was it that David did that caused this pivot from being greatly distressed, ready to die, but strengthen himself in the Lord. You have to go back seven chapters to uh, 1 Samuel 23, seven chapters earlier because Jonathan now strengthens David in the Lord. And you can see our role to strengthen one another, and it's based on identity. David became aware. This is when earlier now when David is being chased by Saul in the desert. David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness at Ziph at Horish, And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David. He took action, Jonathan did, and encouraged David in God. Encouraged him in the Lord. This is where we see, okay, what is it? What is this technique? What are they doing? Jonathan said to David, Don't be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. You will be king over Israel. I will be next to you, and Saul, my father, knows that also. You will be king over Israel. We knew that. Samuel anointed him before he killed Goliath. Then all these years in the desert, he's still anointed king, but that hasn't occurred yet. He's anointed, uh, but he hasn't actually sat on the throne. He doesn't have a throne. He's out in the desert. So look at his circumstances here. I'm being chased around. I don't even How am I a king? I don't even have a throne. I don't have, I don't have nothing. It hasn't been realized yet. But what is his identity? You are the king. You can't be moaning and whining. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. You need to overcome the circumstances and act in accord with your identity. So, how is it you lead when you feel lost? I guarantee you, David was lost in both of those episodes. His identity given by God, the anointed king of Israel, even though he doesn't feel it yet, there's no one bound down before him, he doesn't have a palace. It's from understanding that basic identity. Now he can control his attitude. I am the king. Eeyore and Christopher Robbins, you know, and Winnie the Pooh. Eeyore is always moping and whining about his circumstances. Pathetic. He can't influence anyone. No one grows around Eeyore. And you notice how when you're around Eeyore, everything goes down? I notice that in athletics. If a guys like, oh, I'm tired, my, my throat hurts, and my back hurts, and I'm too tired to do whatever. That's contagious, isn't it? When you're around an Eeyore, it sucks everybody down. It just sucks the life right out of your soul. But when you're on positive and strength and encouragement, and someone says, Hey, come on, let's go, let's move, and there's excitement, that too is contagious. David focused on his identity as king. I have to put my attitude not to succumb to my circumstances, but overcome them and line them up with my identity. That is how I then lead. So my identity leads to my attitude. Number five, it is a difficult choice to look beyond our circumstances and focus on our identity. It's a difficult choice to look beyond our circumstances and focus on our identity. Less than 3% of people ever do that. Those are the champions. They don't dwell in the mire of their circumstances. So you notice now David has his identity He's controlled his attitude, and he's permeating the attitude of his men because he takes charge. They were just going to stone him. That's the power that comes from God. Now, he, does, he knows he's got to act, but he doesn't just run and jump and go blindly. What does David do? He inquires of the Lord. He gets the ephod. How do I inquire of the Lord? What do I do? Shall I pursue them or not? And what is God's answer? Go. Pursue. Put this in perspective. You're David. Three days journey up, you get kicked out of the Philistine army. Three days back, they're exhausted, and they realize everything's burned. They don't have one possession. Their women and children are kidnapped. They're tired. A third of them can't even go. I guarantee you, in the back of David's mind, if he's like you and I, he's thinking, I'm going to put on a show and ask, hey, you want me to go, but I really know God loves me, and he's concerned about how I feel. He's concerned about my feelings and my emotions, and I'm tired and the blisters on my feet. I'm butt sore from going up and down all of these horses. He's going to say, you know what, David? Take a break. Sit by the brook. Soak your feet. Why don't you get some food? You're the king. Have some people serve. I'm just going to lightning strike over there and kill those guys. And then the women and children come back. Wouldn't that be easy? Is God concerned with how you feel? I've never found it in Scripture. God is concerned with the question can you overcome the way you feel, even when it's dangerous and when it's hard? David, go! And David, as a man after God's own heart, goes when he doesn't feel like it. Again, God has not given us a spirit of timidity and weakness and fear, but of power, love, and discipline. So it's our identity that gets rid of this fear. For David, I am the king. I don't need to be afraid, and I'm anointed king, and I haven't sat on a throne yet. I can't die. So he has no fear. Power. That is a powerful definition. You are the king, the anointed king. That is power, and it's not you. It's God's power flowing through you when you make that decision to go ahead and pursue and go. He has the discipline to control his thinking Who are you in relation to God? That's part of self-awareness in the Greek there of that word used for discipline, sophronos. Do you understand how you are in relation to God? He's the sovereign one. He said you're a king. Now I can discipline my thoughts, act like a king. Now I act, verb, love. I go, pursue. Jesus on the cross, it's an act of love to do. You don't sit when you love, you do. And he goes and saves the women and children. So how do you lead when you're lost? You have to understand your identity. From that, you control your attitude. Then you inquire of God to see what action to take. That's exactly what David did in this low point of his life. Was his action safe? He's got 600 dudes. A third of them stay back. They're too tired. They've had this big journey They're exhausted. They can't, they're not in fighting shape. That is stupid to go pick a fight when you're exhausted. The old UFC fights, you had to win three of them in one night. And if one guy had two long fights and he's in the third, boy, that is a tough fight. That's not fair if he's fighting a fresher man. David is going out after these Amalekites, and David's men are exhausted. They are not prepped for fighting. That's not very safe. The world would say that's not very smart. Yet that's exactly what God told them to do, overcome your fear and go and do it. So how does this from David in the Old Testament, how does this relate to us today now in our world where we feel confused and uncertain, not sure what's going on? How about the economy? Uh, How about riots? Whatever it is. Have you noticed there's delusional thinking out there? It's not that hard to see it. It's everywhere. So the question is, where does this come from? 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So what's one area this comes from? Deceit. We know there's a spirit world. Oh, that helps explain a lot of what's going on. There's a spirit world. 2 Thessalonians 2, this chapter is about the tribulation and the rapture. And so, and the Antichrist. So, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering to him, so we're now, there's going to be a rapture and a tribulation. At the rapture, Christ will come, but he doesn't land. And what do we do? Our movement is up to gather to him. That's what this is talking about here. At the end of the tribulation, he comes down and actually lands. And that's when the Antichrist goes in the lake of fire, Satan goes in the abyss, and you go to the millennial kingdom. So this is, in the early part of the tribulation, this is the rapture. And the man of Lannus, that's the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. That's going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. He'll sit in the temple, displaying himself as being God. Then the lawless one, that Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay. So when at the end of the tribulation, when Christ actually lands, he slays the Antichrist, goes in the lake of fire. That's his coming when he actually lands. That is, the one, the Antichrist, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So what do you notice here? There's going to be a lot of deception that's spiritually based. So let's look at number six. Satan is a master of deception. But now we look forward. For this reason, God sends a powerful delusion so they believe the lie in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So we talked about deceit. Here's another phrase, though. This is different. Delusion. Delusional thinking. Where does that come from? Are you kidding me? God. We have to understand this. So there's deception. Here's deception. I'm going to deceive you. Play with me. You come in and ask, hey, how do I get to Portland? Ah, easy. Hit I-5, go south for about an hour. Your brain functioning is fine. Your processing is fine. You are not deluded. You're not demented. Your brain works fine, but I deceived you. I put a false idea in, and you carried it south, and you can't find Portland. That's deceit. That's what Satan does, one guy at a time, and then other people can influence others with deceit, but it's limited when you compare it to delusion that comes from God. God loves using this. You see it in the Old Testament all the time. There's armies. So here's a group. Let's say three or four kings gather together, and they're going to attack this city over here. Happens at Jerusalem a couple times. They come. They wave their red flags. Go. And what happens to these four armies? They fight each other, and they all die. And you know God leaves the generals and the kings intact. They're not deluded, but this deluding influence, some words are confusion sent by God every time. Comes in and permeates. That's not one on one. That's a big. Poof. The infinite God sent that. That is not deception. God doesn't deceive, but He does delude. God deludes this army. Imagine being the general. Dudes, we've practiced this for months. The red flags, we march and we attack and they, they all kill each other. And you're sitting there, you got 100 generals left. Yeah, we'll be back. You got, what are you going to do? Think how frustrated you are trying to control that army. God actually has humor with delusion. Satan uses that as a force multiplier. Satan can deceive you. Look at our country. If you read earlier in this passage, they reject the love of the truth. So, if Satan can deceive us where we don't want to love God… We reject his truth. Our country has done that as we kick God out of the schools and so forth. Now that's a force multiplier because Satan cannot send a deluding influence, but God can, and now that force multiplies what Satan's trying to do. But that begs the question, who's in control? If God is sending the deluding influence that brings about the tribulation, number seven, God is sovereign and always in full control. Even in the tribulation, you would think that's a high point of Satan, but it's not. It's planned by God, and it's a restoration of his relationship with Israel, his bride. But God is sovereign even in the tribulation. So you might say, all right, well, what about me? We've looked at David. We kind of see what's going on in our world a little bit today. It's simple once you understand there's deluding influence and spiritual influence. But what about me? What is my identity? John 3, Jesus answered, this is Nicodemus, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. There's more detail here than we're going to talk about, but just this phrase you hear all the time, born again. Is this guy a born again believer or not? There's two classes of people, believers, non-believers. If you're not a believer and you're here today, please talk with somebody. I'll be available afterwards. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about of what this can mean, but now we're going to talk to Believers. Are you a born-again believer? And so you hear that phrase all the time, and I don't think most of us understand it. I spent years trying to understand what that actually meant because they'd find verses like this, 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because God's seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Well, now, wait a minute. If I'm born again, I sin all the time. I assume you do. I saw D sin once. He got a little angry, and it was kind of interesting, but that's the only time I've seen that one. But uh, anyway, most of my sins are repetitive. I'm assuming yours are too. So this verse never quite set with me. I couldn't figure out where to put it. How how do I put that peg in the wall? If I'm born again, how come I can sin? Because that says I can't. Earlier in that same chapter, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when Christ appears, And that's at our resurrection or rapture. We will see Him as He is. We will be like Him. We will be changed. Has it appeared yet what that final product will be? No. So you're born again, and it's not until a rapture or resurrection that you actually see the full product. Just like David, he was anointed king, but where was his throne? It took years for that to be manifest and obvious. This is the process of metamorphosis. We all know this from grade school. That's you got a caterpillar, then you go to the cocoon, and then you have a butterfly. This very amazing transformation called metamorphosis. And that means a striking change of form or structure in an individual after hatching or birth. So number eight, being born again is a process of metamorphosis. You could go sanctification, but metamorphosis is a better word, I think, and that's what's in the Greek. Uh, It's like going from a caterpillar to a butterfly. So imagine being a non-believer, you're a caterpillar. The moment you believe, you don't do anything, but by faith you accept Christ, now you're a new creature. You have this new birth, but it's a process. It's not just immediately hatched. You've got cocoon time now. In that cocoon, you don't see very well. It's all gooey and messy, but it's amazing, this transformation, and that's our life here until you're resurrected. What do you do in the cocoon when you can't see very well when your circumstances are bad? Are you gaining strength or gaining weakness? That's the fundamental question. Here it is, metamorphosis. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Metamorphosis in the Greek. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are being transformed. Already transformed? Or in the process of being transformed? It's a process going on. It's development time. After Our belief, but we're not yet resurrected. Matthew 17, Jesus underwent metamorphosis, same Greek word, as he was transfigured before them on the mount. Powerful words understanding our identity. 1 Corinthians 15 is a resurrection chapter. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. So you're a caterpillar. You believe you're in the cocoon, but you're still on this earth. Can you die? Yes, I've seen a lot of people die. But at the end, after you're resurrected, you can't die anymore. You're sown perishable, raised at the resurrection, imperishable. This whole chapter is about understanding the resurrection. Romans 8, Paul is talking about the big picture of creation. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time, coronavirus, economic collapse, China trying to move influence riots in the streets, whatever. This could be cancer, it could be back pain, it could be migraines. The sufferings, the circumstances of this present time are silly. They're not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be. Has it been revealed yet? No, but is to be revealed in us as believers. For the anxious longing of creation, all of creation is subject to the curse, but what is it actually longing to see? It's longing to see the revealing of the sons of God. What is that? That is the resurrection. What overcomes can't die anymore. That's what they're waiting for is to be revealed as a fully developed son of God. Number 10, the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Luke 20, there's a lot of information in this passage. All we're going to do is look at identity here. Once you're resurrected, you cannot die anymore. You're a son of God. You're a son of the resurrection. Puts it all together, this is Jesus speaking. There's a lot more in here, but for the sake of identity, there's a couple of things now. Once you're a believer, by faith you have eternal life, but you're undergoing a process of metamorphosis, sanctification, that is not complete until you're resurrected. Once you're resurrected, you cannot sin, cannot die. Answers a lot of questions about how things go in the millennium and eternity. So our metamorphosis, our identity, is a process. We're not done yet, and we can affect the outcome. The culmination of this is our resurrection. Number 11, our process of birth as a child of God culminates with our resurrection. Our process of birth culminates in our resurrection. Just like David was anointed king, but you didn't see it for a long time. Go to 1 Corinthians, Paul, chapter 9. Do you not know in the race all the runners run, but only one wins the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to win a crown that will last forever. Run to win the prize. You're in the cocoon. You're undergoing metamorphosis. A, be mentally weak, complain about your circumstances and digress and come out hardly any better than you were as a caterpillar. B, be interested in the outcome. Influence the outcome by understanding your identity and that your attitude about your circumstances, like David who still goes despite the fear and the anxiety, he is improving his strength, improving the glory that comes out the other end, improving the quality of that butterfly that comes out of the cocoon. So I I like trophies. I like competitive sports, and it just killed me. I I first became, about 15 years ago, you got the participation trophy. Some of you have probably got one of those. I never let my kids have one. Those are garbage. The biggest way to teach mental weakness to a kid, think about it, you don't even have to show up every time. Just show up a few times. You don't have to be on time. But if you show up occasionally at the right place, You don't win. You don't overcome. You can still complain about being tired and wet and cold. And if it is tired and wet and cold, go ahead and go home and come back another day. And at the end, you get a trophy for being a schmuck. You're training weakness because we are always increasing strength or weakness, right? What is a participation trophy doing? Going full hog on weakness. I thought it couldn't get any worse. What is the new trophy that our culture is trying to sell right now? We're trying to sell an even more mentally weak trophy. Stay home. Stay safe. Don't go. Don't do. Don't act. Don't set goals. Don't work. Don't accomplish. Don't overcome. Whine about your circumstances and stay home and pull the covers over your head and grow in weakness, and we will influence you through electronic media and the news and that stuff. We will give you what you need. Heaven forbid, don't go and interact and lead and influence. That is the moral trophy of staying home. <clears throat> so you might say, okay, I've got it. Now, I have an identity that stretches my thinking a little bit because I like to think simple right now, but I have to think big picture of my identity in Christ in this metamorphosis and how my decision, I don't earn eternal life, that's faith. But how I interact in this cocoon period affects the glory that comes out the other end. So I've got that. I can't whine about my circumstances, but what do I do? David went and got the ephod. Asked the priest what to do, and God said, go. Where's my ephod? We don't need one. The Bible's complete. So Jesus gives us the ephod here. He tells us, go. Just like he told David, pursue. Go. He doesn't say sit. He doesn't say shelter. He doesn't say retract. He says, go. And do what? Make disciples. Lead influence. We all do it differently. We all have different gifts. We don't all have to go to the same little county in Africa, but we go and we influence people. If it's a non-believer, how do you understand this so we change your eternity? Once you're a believer, do you actually understand your identity? Less than 3% of believers have a clue that they're not done. They thought they were. No, you're not done. There's still time in this cocoon. We have to affect our attitude on how we handle circumstances. Number 12, we are commanded to go and make disciples. We don't need the ephod. The Bible's complete. God's already told us. So to sum up, how do you lead when you feel lost? Because I sometimes feel lost. and have to check myself. Why do I care how I feel? And so I try to do it when we show up at football. I'll try, hey, I feel great, doing great. And I've noticed the college age, I started to know this about six years ago, they will start 85% of their statements with, I feel. And I started thinking, well, what in the world is this? I think, I've observed, I've read, I've analyzed, I've deduced, blah, blah, blah. That would make sense. I feel. No one cares how you feel. God doesn't care how you feel. He wants to see, can you overcome it? We're being trained in our education system to feel rather than think. How do you lead when you feel lost? We must understand our identity. From that identity, King David, you are king of Israel. We are a child of God. It's a process that hasn't come out at the end yet, and that's where our attitude in circumstances is a huge thing to consider. From there, we take action, and we each have a different gift. Each of our actions can be different, but it should be influencing other people. Uh, so, I think… Uh, is, I'm not sure if there's… Uh, there may be someone coming up here to pray at the end. We're going to be done. We'll pray as a group. Uh, if Remember, you've got your cards on the end that you can fill out. What I'm hoping to do is get you to think a little bit uh, and challenge our thinking so that we can be brave people that influence the world rather than cowards that are influenced by circumstance. Uh, Yeah, there, we'll have prayer at the side uh, if you're interested. And if you aren't sure that this made sense, feel free to talk to any of us uh, here afterwards. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank You for this beautiful day. Uh, Thank You that we have the opportunity to come and study Your Word and learn from David uh, how to navigate uncertain times filled with fear and uncertainty. Uh, And I just thank You that You're a God of strength and power and solution rather than failure and fear. And thank you that you are always in control at all times. Help us to realize our identity that you give us, not what culture gives us. In Jesus' name, amen.